You know, I didn't actually know this is the Age of Empires studio until pretty much the very end. That's not as surprising as I'd like to admit. I'm going to go ahead and admit something that's going to make everyone on the internet hate me. I'm not that big of a fan of the Age of Empires series. I felt that one was a severely flawed game, which stopped being fun at about the third campaign, and I felt that two, while certainly iconic and certainly one of the games that helped to push RTSs forward, had a lot of irritation factor with regards to its campaigns. Three, I only played through once. I don't remember it that well. I, I don't remember being irritated by that one, but that was a good one. Age of Mythology, which we've actually already done a rumination on, that was awesome. I love that game. But I bring that up <clears throat> because that kind of reminds me of this game, doesn't it? I know, I know. It's an RTS for console, and that is valid. That is something that is going to necessitate designing it for console, and they clearly did. So a lot of things were just kind of absent from the game, things that would you know, necessitate having a keyboard and a mouse, for example. Not to dismiss this. In fact, one of the first things I want to comment on to get the rest of the Internet pissed off at me here is this feels like a better PC port than Skyrim. And I mean that sincerely, I'm not actually joking. Skyrim, when I played it first, when it very first came out on the PC, was like, huh, because there's just parts of it that work wrong. It, it's so hard to explain, but of course, if you've played it, you probably understand what I'm talking about. Like the menuing, for example, it's just, just off. And in some cases, it doesn't even properly acknowledge the mouse as even existing. By contrast, this game felt like a functional PC port. It still played like a console game, but at no point did I feel like I was wrestling with the interface to try and get it to do what I wanted it to do. So, credit where credit is due. And again, the game is perfectly functional. It's just, there's a lot of features that were kind of absent, which is fine, but it, and it took some getting used to, which of course brings me to the big thing I'm sure everyone's asking. Is this baby's first RTS? Kinda? I'm not sure I would recommend this as a first RTS. There are some very substantial flaws in the game, which I feel uh, pull away from it. But there's also some good stuff here, too. And it is very basic, uh, with, I'd say, only two missions exceptions. Mm, let me rewind that. Three missions exceptions. For the most part, I didn't feel like I was really engaging my brain all that much. I was mostly just trying stuff out. Like, okay, let's try this out. Let's, tr let's do this composition. And to the game's credit, it does get several things right. I mentioned negatives. Um, now, I forgot to write them down, so we're going to make this big blinding glare show up on my glasses so I can just look at them here. Yes, so there's three big negatives, which I wanted to talk about, and I just reminded myself of them. Uh, where's, the, where's the black? There it is. <laughs> I, I put up these giant black images on my monitors to get rid of some of the glare on my glasses when I record, if you're wondering here. It also supposedly gets rid of some of the green screen bleed over, although that hasn't been working as well lately. I don't know why. Moving on. First problem, unit spam. Now, unit spam is a long-standing problem when it comes to RTS games. But if you look all the way back at Command and Conquer or uh, Warcraft 1, the original, you will see, I know those aren't the first RTS games, but you will see that even back then they had better combat spam than this game. Because this game hits everything wrong. There's a lot of things you can do to fix combat spam. One of the things you can do is have them have a lot of different lines. I say about 15 to 20 is a good number of lines for a unit to have for acknowledging an order. Because you're going to order units around a lot. You, don't, you want some variety there. Another thing they can do, and I've seen a few games do this, is have the actor who's saying it effectively record the same line, but do it differently. 
effectively record the same line, but do it differently. Effectively, you get the idea. And thus that adds some variety to it, and it does help. The third thing you can do, this is something that's more of a more modern idea, but I've seen several RTSs do this, is have a built-in program running or a script or whatever, which is checking for how long it's been since they've last said something. So let's say you order someone to go somewhere, and they're like, Yes, sir, I will go there immediately. My life for ire. I mean, Nerzul. And as they're walking forwards, it, you, you give like three or four more orders, but it checks, and it's like, well, hang on. It's only been a couple seconds since the last time I did that. So I'm not going to play another sound clip for another 5, 6, 10 seconds. And then 5, 6, 10 seconds later, okay, now it's been long enough, now go ahead and trigger the voice file. So those are, those are the three big things you can do to try and mitigate the, the spam problem. This game does the exact opposite of all of those. Every, the units, with very few exceptions, use the exact same response for over and over. Rolling. 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 And it's just over and over and over. It also happens with no variation, and it happens every single time you give an order. It is aggravating. I The only reason I didn't give that a second negative is because the campaign is relatively short enough to mitigate that. In short, it was an eight-hour game, and so I only had to hear rolling for about eight hours. It became a bit of a meme on camera, too, when we were streaming it. The second major problem this game follows through with is another old RTS problem. Pathfinding. Now, pathfinding is one of those things that's actually critically important for a good RTS, and I mean that sincerely. It is worth noting that good pathfinding is actually a pretty modern idea, relatively speaking, I'd say within the last 20 years or so. Earlier, I guess that doesn't sound that modern when I say it that way, earlier uh, RTSs really had issues with pathfinding. I, I mean, everyone makes fun of the Dragoons in StarCraft, but all I have to say is look at the original Command and & Conquer and try to get a large amount of tanks from one side of the map to the other. What you will have is a traffic jam of doom. There's also another fun little thing. This, is, uh, this actually happened in this game. So here's Unit A and here's Unit B. And they both want to get up there. So they're moving up here, but they bump into each other. Now what happens is both independently decide to, to stop and readjust their position to go around the obstacle of the other unit. However, their pathfinding does not acknowledge the fact that the other unit is another unit, which is also moving to the same destination. So what happens is, oh, excuse me, oh, excuse me, oh, excuse me, oh, excuse me. And they do, they do make it, but they actually slow each other down. Now that's irritating to begin with, but in the middle of a combat scenario when you really need your units to get back, that is actually aggravating. That can actually cost you a mission. And uh, at one point, the, when that actually happened on stream, I had to actually order one of the units, because there's no stop command, I'd order one of the units to just move over here and one to move up here, and the rest to move further down to disentangle them from each other. I could also make a romance joke. <laughs> One occurred to me here, you know, it's, it's we're secretly playing a dating sim. Ah, my fair tank. But the point here is that there, that's the next big issue, which immediately compounds with the other issue, body blocking. Now, body blocking is fairly simple. Units have collision with each other. I just mentioned that. Now, that's not the problem by itself. Allow me to give you a direct example of what I'm talking about. Let's say there's one unit, one single infantry. It's a Spartan in this case. He's going down a ramp. Ugh, he's been knocked over. Now, he's on the ground now. So he's just hanging out there, blocking the ramp for anyone else to go down it. I had to actually pull my troops back 
and find another route because that one Spartan was blocking the entire ramp. Now that's an egregious example, but this was happening the entire campaign. All the units have collision with each other, and those collision blocks are certainly unusual, and they cause a lot of traffic jam issues and a lot of inability to function issues. For example, after a certain point, I literally couldn't get my units to all attack an enemy base simultaneously because the ones in the back couldn't get, you know, couldn't reach it. And the ones in front, well, they wouldn't move any further forward because lack of proper commands. We talked about this already. Willing to let that go. I get it. Console RTS. Uh, the, um, so those are the, those are the two big ones. Those are, amazingly aggravating. But I do also have to talk about uh, some other aspects of game design. For example, the third faction concept. There's actually four factions if you want to get really technical, but the third, third faction concept. Way, way, way back in the day, the two-faction system was the norm for RTSs, and with good reason. However, it's also worth noting that that was almost entirely a cosmetic thing. If you look at some of the original RTSs, the variances between the two sides were minuscule. Warcraft 2 is probably the best example, but again, you can go further before that. And you will see that while the units do look very different in terms of gameplay stats, if you just closed your eyes and was playing the game, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference except for a few specific things. Very minor changes. That kind of progressed as time went on, so the two sides would get more and more and more varied, until we had two very distinct sides. Then StarCraft came along. StarCraft had a third faction, and the Protoss, Terrans, and Zerg play very differently. This was the game changer when it came to RTSs, and you'll notice that a huge number of RTSs since then have used the three-faction system. Now, it's a good system, and I understand why they do it, but I find myself wondering if they shouldn't have bothered here, because the third faction is the Flood in Halo Wars, which occurs 20 years before Halo 1 on a totally separate part of the galaxy. Now, before you go into this, I just want to say, I'll actually talk about that later. Regardless, I do think the introduction of the Flood could have worked if they weren't the Flood. Many people in chat mentioned the idea of effectively keeping the same general gameplay concepts, but instead making them the Sentinels, for example, or some kind of Forerunner units. Lord knows there's an entire forge, an entire fleet here, so it's not like we don't have plenty of Forerunners lying around. And there are actual Forerunner units in the game, so sure, that works. That would change the nature of the regeneration mechanics slightly, but only slightly. Again, strip away the skin... No pun intended, and what you have left is a faction which ha uh, attacks with large numbers, and they're very site-specific, like each unit only is good at a very specific thing, and they have this regeneration mechanic. There's also a specific mission where you have to knock out certain things in order to knock out the big thing. It's not hard to understand how this could all apply to the Sentinels or the Forerunner tech just as easily. You need to knock out these power nodes, which are being self-repaired in order to be able to destroy the central hub, which is a problem for some reason because it's blocking communications or whatever. It's not that hard to see that the repair the units would have some kind of self-repair mechanism, and there's your regeneration mechanic. The only mission it would substantially change is the one where they're going through and you have to you're on the ship, the first ship mission, not the second one. Now, <clears throat> I want to save that for a minute later. Well, I guess we could segue now. Sure, why not? Let's go and talk about it. But I, I just wanted to say that the two factions don't play all that differently, which is fairly similar to Age of Empires, where the factions usually don't play all that differently except for a mate, you know, like, like the, the little stuff. It's, it's the old style thing, right? There's a couple of specific things, and there's a couple of specific units, but for the most part, the two factions are basically analogous. There is, of course, 
uh, a huge exception to that, that would be Age of Mythology, which played brilliantly, and the three factions played very differently, but let's get into that right now. <clears throat> the ship mission. So, you've been hearing me complain a lot about this game from a gameplay aspect, so why am, why did it still get, still get a positive score? Well, first of all, it has campaign co-op. Do you know how many RTSs have campaign co-op? Because I can think of one other one, and just because I want to talk about it, it's Command and Conquer Red Alert 3, because more people need to be aware of that game. It was actually a really good RTS. I will praise that one many times. But, moving on. So, proper campaign co-op. That's a good thing. And the unit variety within a single faction is actually quite good. And as I mentioned before, there's actually a lot of different strategies. If you don't understand what I mean by that, whenever we eventually re review StarCraft 1, that game is going to have some issues when it comes to the gameplay balance problem, because Army of Hydralisks. It's really easy to just mass one unit. Now, I did mass one unit several missions in this game, specifically to tar them out. But it does seem like a mixed unit is the best choice, and there's a lot of different options there. You can't really do that in some other RTSs, so that's good. But the last thing, the thing they really did well was the mission design. Now, this is funny, and I'm, I'm going to build up to this point a little bit, but the mission design in general was nice and varied. You didn't just have, there's an enemy base, here's your, here's your base, go. That's the bog-standard RTS mission. And it's fine, but it's vanilla. And the more of it you have, the less interesting it gets. You need something to spice it up. Some people ask why I praise StarCraft II so much when it comes to RTSs, and the answer is mission design. The missions in this, those games are phenomenally well-designed and, and varied and awesome and incredible, and I will never stop gushing about them. And this game is pretty damned good when it comes to their mission design. There's a lot of variety to it. I mentioned earlier, you know, there's this there's this uh, ally here you're trying to defend, you're trying to rescue. And up here, there's this giant proto-grave mine, and you need to knock out all these things by hitting all these flood bases while you're constantly getting hit in order to be able to hit that thing. Good. I like that. There's also, um, what's another general? So the final, second to final mission is one where you're, you're going up a very long series of ramps. It's, it's just kind of staircasing back and forth as you're going up this terrain, and you have to grapple this device and drag it up the ramps. If you grapple it and drag it, sure, but if you lose it, if the unit that is grappling it dies, it'll slide back to the bottom of the ramp. However, if you manage to get it up to one of the next steps, it'll just stay there, because it, you know, it's on flat terrain now. Thus, there's a degree of sort of built-in, uh, almost mid-mission checkpoint kind of a thing, because you're not going to lose progress as long as you manage to keep it up there. Obviously, if it's destroyed, it's destroyed, and that's the end of that. Another interesting one is the final mission. Where you have to, where you've got flood on one side and you've got the covenant on the other, and you've got to basically take control of an area, which in this case means ensure that no enemy units are nearby, and you have a unit nearby, and then you have to click the locks in a certain order in order to progress. And of course, each of the missions has these optional objectives, which not only unlock skulls, which are cool as usual, but those optional objectives are just kind of fun little things to go for, because that's what optional objectives usually should be, is fun little extra optional things. Good design. But two missions I want to talk about in specific, one of which is the cleansing. The cleansing, this is a brilliant mission. So I mentioned the flood regeneration mechanic. There's this bit where you are on a ship, which is going down a narrow corridor, which is going through a forerunner base, let's just say it that way. And you have, you don't have a base per se. Supply is ticking in regularly, and you do have 
buildings that you can build units from and hide your units in. You can lose them. There's a bunch of turret points, but basically you're on you're on the ship. You're on the the back of the ship, and you're just running around here trying to deal with stuff. The goal of the mission: kill all the flood that are on your thing. Okay, no problem. So you go and you start killing all the units, and then you realize very quickly: well, hang on, I can't kill all the flood because you can't kill a flood building. It just sits there until it regenerates. Well, this is where the gimmick of the game comes in, or the mission, excuse me. Because there's also a bunch of sentinels, which as I mentioned are already in the game, who are constantly attacking you and the flood. And every so many minutes, I think it's like three minutes or something like that, a giant wave of death kind of bathes the, sh bathes the ship from front to back. This wave of death will permanently destroy a, I almost said a scourge, wow, uh, a flood structure as long as it's already dead, aka in the state where it's regenerating. So you still have to fly around, take out the structures, make sure that they're in dead state, because they, they regenerate relatively quickly, for when the beam comes through. That's awesome. That's brilliant. That's excellent mission design. It's innovative. It's creative. It's a great set piece. It encourages the player to think on their toes and to time themselves. It's, oh, I can't gush about that enough. It's an excellent mission. Uh, that was the cleansing mission, I believe, specifically, which was a very, 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 very good mission. Uh, there was one other one I wrote down the name, uh, Scarab. There it is. So the other mission was Scarab. <clears throat> now, the Scarab mission, just keep checking my notes here. The Scarab mission... Sorry about the throat thing, by the way. There's a giant Scarab, which is over here. Now, it's got a Scarab beam. Now, the Scarabs are death units in this game. They are destructo death dooms. And that beam will absolutely obliterate pretty much anything it's looking at. So what happens is the Scarab's on the far end of the map. You start way over here. Now, you need to take the Scarab out. What's happening is its beam is kind of going back and forth like this. Okay, so you already see where it's going, right? You need to stay out of the beam. But the thing is, this beam stretches across the entire map. Now, there's terrain in the way. So it's kind of a pseudo-stealth mission. As long as you're behind the terrain, it doesn't see you, right? Wrong, because now we, have we add actual layers of complexity to this. First of all, there's quite a bit of Covenant forces in the area, which you have to deal with as well, including turrets, which will slow you down tremendously, and plenty of forces. But second of all, and this is my favorite part, there's these batteries, which you can go, uh, power stations. And as you take out each of these power stations, it slows down the rotation speed of the thing, so you get more time with each pass as it's moving around. Hang on, there's another complexity. If you simply wait too long, it will eventually start destroying the terrain, knowing that you're behind it. And eventually, if you take far too long, it will eventually punch through the, 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 the wall, basically, that is defending your base over here, and... There goes your base, and you lose the mission. Again, brilliant. Not quite as good as the ship mission, but that's good mission design. And that kind of stuff is why I like Halo Wars so much. I suppose this is a good time as I need to talk about City of Arcadia. City of Arcadia is a terrible mission. It is also the fourth, question mark, mission of the game, very, very early on. It's, it's, you should be playing it within the first hour of gameplay. Now, this is a problem for what I like to call the damn train situation. Now, some of you probably already know where I'm going with this, but allow me to elaborate. How many of you have played Grand Theft Auto San Andreas? How many of you are hearing the line in your head right now without me even saying it? The thing is, that mission isn't that bad. That's not bragging. 
That's not elitism. It's not that bad. It is, however, irritating and badly designed. However, there's one other thing about that mission that really makes it last so much in people's heads. Can you guess what it is? I'll just go ahead and tell you. It's early. It's one of the first... You can get to that mission in 15 minutes without even trying. It is very early on in the game. And that's why it's so memorable. That's why so many people remember that mission. I know people, pers new people personally, who reached that mission and quit over that mission because it was badly designed and because it's one of the earliest missions in the game. So they're like, oh, well, this is crap. I don't want to deal with this. Now, I had to talk to one of those people and be like, here, do me a favor, push through it. It gets better. And they did, and they enjoyed the rest of the game. But you see the problem. This is why I bang on so much about the power of outros, because it's the last thing you remember, and the power of intros, because it's one of the first things the players encounter. These two things need to be good in a game. Otherwise, you're going to have problems in both directions. Having such an irritating mission so early on, this is why so many of these things become memes. It's why Bulverines are so memorable from Fable. I'm sure some of you remember that one, too. Because that is a fairly early on mission in that game, and it sucks. Right? So that brings me to the Arcadia mission. This is very early on, and while it's not the worst designed mission I've ever seen, it is a badly designed, frustrating mission. Let's go down the list, shall we? So, you don't even start with a base, okay? So you are given units to start with. A few flying units, which, are, as per usual for RTS rules, are relatively weak, but make up for it by being fast and being able to ignore terrain. So, okay. You also get one guy and a warthog, which is your hero unit. So, again, relatively speedy thing. Now, that's important. Keep that in mind. You are given units that are designed to be mobile and to be able to be responsive. Okay, that makes sense. Why? Because your goal is to defend the civilians as they very slowly walk across the map up to the evacuation shuttles, okay? Now, here's the thing. This has all of the hallmarks of bad escort design. The civilians you are escorting are completely powerless. They can do... They, they're very weak... They will beeline and not do anything to survive. They, uh, the enemies will ignore you and other aspects in order to focus on killing the civilians or the transports. In short, basically everything that you do wrong in an escort mission. That's the first problem. Now, this is why they give you the mobile response unit, so you can fly around and respond very quickly. However, of these three routes, two actually are the only ones that matter. You don't know the third one matters, because uh, relatively early into the mission, that ship decides to take off early and blows itself up. No matter what you do, by the way. It magically teleports troops in to blow it up. Blow it up. It's a little stupid, but whatever. It's another problem. So, uh, if you don't understand why that's a problem, the problem is it's memorization. A strategy game in general should not rely on memorization, in my opinion. Maybe for speedrunning or challenge running, sure, absolutely. But when you're playing a game for the first time, you shouldn't have to play it a second time, so now you know what to do, right? That's more of a Sonic thing, or other games that literally lean on memorization as a gameplay mechanic. So, speaking of memorization, at a certain point in the mission, which varies depending on which difficulty you select, the enemy base, which is up over there, by the way, remember, you don't have a base yet, they spawn a giant cannon. This cannon can hit the entire map. It prioritizes the transports. It will kill them in literally seconds. Probably about six seconds, give or take. Think about that. I shouldn't even have to further explain. I could probably stop right there to, to explain why this mission is what. Because what actually happened to me, I was playing a normal difficulty because everyone asks, is 
the turrets spawned, and I knew. I'm like, okay, I'll go deal with the turrets. And the turrets turned and started firing at the transports. I lost the mission at the 15 second mark. Twice. Because it kills them so quickly. And it focus fires them. Now, the third time around, actually more like the fourth time in the mission total, because holy crap. Oh yeah, by the way, enemy units will literally suicide bomb the transports. The fourth or fifth or however many times, I've replayed this mission several times. Time, what I did was I had a rather large force going. Because eventually the game, the mission does give you a base, and it's like, here you go. And there's also a second base you can get in order to get some kind of units going in order to keep the defenses going. So, cool. But I had to send an overwhelming force to take out this turret. Barely managed it, by the way. I lost almost my entire force because that enemy base is very well defended against, you know, aerial units, which are relatively weak but fast, or, say, the warthogs, which are relatively weak but fast. This is why I brought up that earlier point. The entire mission design encourages you to have fast response units because it's effectively one extended escort mission across an entire map. Attacking the enemy base, the fortified enemy base, with the turret, which is mandatory, requires kind of the opposite of that. Now, I did make it work, but that was only on normal difficulty. This mission, I'm sorry for banging on about this point, but this mission is terrible, and I really wanted to explain why. Uh, I guess we could talk about the story stuff. There's not much to share. So this is set 20 years before Halo, Halo 1. Um, it's not bad. You know, it's not bad positioning. It's uh, just a few years after the war's actually war has actually started between the Covenant and the Humies. We can understand the Covenant, of course, because don't don't ask questions. The weird thing here is that the cutscenes, if you were to mute them, are actually quite good. Good cinematography, good camera usage, great choreography. There's this one extended sequence, which is basically just badassery, but also very well choreographed badassery, where the Spartans are taking on a bunch of elites and crushing them. It's awesome. It's a great scene. There's also, uh, what's her name? I wrote her name. Serena is her name, who is the AI, the smart AI, the second smart AI we've encountered, if I'm not mistaken, at least going through the games. And she's actually wonderfully snarky and legitimately amusing repeatedly. Um... But other than the quality of the cutscenes and the quality of the choreography, the dialogue is really bad. What I usually refer to as Hollywood bad, or first pass bad, and I'll explain both of those. In Hollywood, a lot of things happen because action movie logic, because that's just kind of how movies are designed, so here, things, here's the, how things are going to go. In the absence of all logic or sense or continuity or relevance or emotional impact or drama or anything, it's just here. A lot of that was on display. Perfect example. Uh, so here's person A, here's person B, and here's person C. Person C takes person B hostage and says, All right, you're going to surrender this to me. Otherwise, I'm going to kill this person. Okay, I'll do anything. Please let them go. And then, you know, they let them go. And as a result of taking that person, now they have the keys to the Doomsday device or the Super Forerunner factory, which is what it is in this case, or whatever, right? That is a very common Hollywood scene, for example, the Hollywood hostage scene. You've probably seen it a dozen times. Um, I call it the Hollywood thing because it's really common in most films, especially in the last 30 years. Another example, uh, the dialogue just... I, I mentioned the dialogue, first-pass dialogue. Okay, writing dialogue's hard. I'll admit that. That's a, that's a very valid thing. What I have uh, told many people and what I do myself when it comes to writing dialogue is I do multiple passes. Also, speaking it out loud tends to help, too. 
Um, so you sit down, you look at the dialogue, it's like, okay, blah, 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 blah. And you do the first pass, and the first pass just, just gets across the general idea of what you want for the scene. It's usually very crude and very rough, and it just is like you know, straight exposition or things that people wouldn't say to each other because you're just trying to get across a, a rough point, right? That's first-pass dialogue. You're supposed to go back and then polish it and then try it again and maybe a third time in order to try and make the dialogue actually work and sound like dialogue. They didn't do that here. So the dialogue is actively, legitimately terrible. The main plot isn't terrible either, although I find myself wondering why they went this direction with it. The whole point is that we are trying to stop them from finding a Forerunner base, which has tons of flood in it, because of course it does. I, I said I'd talk about the flood. The flood thing doesn't bother me as much as it probably should. Granted, I'm not what you'd call a Halo fan. I'm, I just started this series last week. But it still bugs me that the flood are here because there's no reason for them to be. As I mentioned earlier, they could simply be replaced with something else, either a new race or the Sentinels or the Forerunners or whatever, and it would have worked fine. Instead, they decided to use the flood because they're the flood. It's Halo. you got to have the flood. I mean, you can't have a Metroid game without Samus, okay? So... That's problematic. But narratively speaking, I also am bothered because the Flood serve no narrative purpose whatsoever. You could argue that you can't properly have horror in RTS, to which I say, ha 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 But there's no tone, no atmosphere, no feel. The Flood have always been horrifying, going all the way back to their real. Remember that way back in Halo 1, which was a great scene. And the way they were showcased in 2, or the way that they were built up in 3. Oh my god, that was brilliant in 3. Right? But here it's just, hey, there's some organic things, and they're Flood. And we know they're Flood. We know immediately that they're Flood. They don't know that they're Flood, obviously. Uh, they're just parasites. And they're regenerating, so we got to beat them. In one case, we find a, a vehicle which is absolutely covered in Flood gunk. So, so they're gone, right? No. All you have to do is beat off the Flood gunk with a bunch of guns, and then they're fine. There's no impact. There's no relevance for the Flood to be here. In fact, frankly, other than the one mission, if you completely ejected the Flood from the game entirely, I'm not sure there'd be any significance lost from a narrative perspective. This is why I keep emphasizing it should just been the friggin' Sentinels, right? Nevertheless, it doesn't bother me that much, you know, the idea that they would have another facility which has another Flood spot. Blah, blah, blah. There are ways to make this stretch. I, I like to think of it as hoops. I will talk about this in a lot of ruminations that are coming live next year, because I recorded those back in August. But I like to count how many hoops you have to jump through in order to make something make sense in fiction. One hoop isn't all that bad. Two hoops, eh, three hoops, eh, four hoops, and it can go past four hoops. I think this is a one-hoop jump, so, okay, it's whatever. <sighs> Having said that, though... I do have to admit that the overall plot is a weird direction for them to go in, which is I was, which I was going to, which I, which is what I just started talking about before I decided to get off and talk about the flood. Why did they decide to make this some big relevant event that f permanently changed the course of the war? Oh, because it has to be because it's the main game, right? I guess I think they could have done a lot of other things with this other than you know we have saved the galaxy from the Covenant here, which is what we do. We end up destroying one of the Forge Worlds, or whatever they're actually called, and wiping out a huge Forerunner fleet to ensure the Covenant don't get a hold of it. Okay. I mean, it's not bad. I don't want to sound like it's bad. It just felt like a strange direction to go in, especially since this is so early in the war. Reach, by contrast, felt like that defeat was earned. And it did 
succeed in allowing the possibility of victory in the end. Whereas this feels like, and we've beaten them, and we do solidly and thoroughly beat both the Covenant and the Flood here. We crush them. I don't know. These are my thoughts. I look forward to yours. Tomorrow we will be starting Halo 4, the final game we'll be playing for this particular Halo series. Um, real quick, because a lot of people keep asking why we're not playing Halo 5. To my knowledge, I don't have the physical ability to play Halo 5. I would have to buy an Xbox in order to do so, which I'm not doing for one game. Uh, it'll probably eventually be ported to PC, which could open that up as far as possibility, but that's the reason why we're not playing Halo 5. Also the fact that no one's ever donated for it or suggested it as a run. That's the other factor. But I have nothing against it. I don't I don't even know if it's a good or bad game, so I wouldn't know. I just wanted to share that really quick. I do hope you guys have enjoyed this run. I'll see you next time.